Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Pasadena Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Terry Anderson, the John and Jean Denault Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Renewing Indigenous Economies, Ideas Defining a Free Society for Native Americans. And it was recorded on January 30th, 2019. Great pleasure to be here after that uh, wonderful lunch. I fear that you'll fall asleep before I speak. So, uh, 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 and I've gotten instructions on how to use the clicker. I have a, a good friend, also an economist, uh, who says you should just give the clicker to someone in the audience. And that way, when the audience is tired of a slide they can't read and are bored with, they can just move on. But I'm not going to follow that rule. Uh, I'll keep it myself. Uh, uh, you've, you've heard three pretty lofty presentations. Uh, what's the likelihood of a recession coming up? Uh, what's, what's going to be the makeup of the Supreme Court in the future? Uh, what's going to be our relationship with a, a country as huge as China? Well, I'm going to take you to a much more micro uh, topic, uh, focus a bit more on just how Hoover and, and the ideas that scholars at Hoover represent uh, might help a group of people that is, is so often forgotten in American society, Native Americans. And as Colin said in the introduction, you'll see in a couple of points here, this doesn't just apply uh, to the United States, it applies across the world. Uh, a, f a few years ago, I, I connected with uh, uh, a Canadian chief, a former chief from a Canadian band, and a leader from New Zealand, and have since hooked up with several other tribal leaders from the United States. And, and Manny Jewell's the one from Canada after we talked, and we're talking about creating this project to, to renew indigenous economies, uh, the topic of, of the, uh, my presentation. Manny said, this is all about creating a philosophical revolution. And when he said that to me, I, I couldn't help but immediately think of, of, of the Hoover motto, which is generating the ideas, defining a free society. And I want to talk to you today about how this project uh, got started uh, and where I, th it's a project where the Hoover Institution can have a leading uh, effect on, on how one of the poorest segments of U.S. society uh, can pull itself out of the poverty that it's in, na namely Native Americans on American Indian reservations. And I want to start by just saying I, okay, already I, I, I've been shown where the Cochrane button is, so I haven't pushed that one yet, but... Uh, I, uh, in fact, the, the people over at the uh, uh, video machines over there said they now have a new name for that button. Uh, you know, what would you expect from an economist? I can, can never resist this. Uh, I'm often introduced and, you know, with, with the question, you know what an economist is, don't you? And the answer is, you know, as you're an economist, you're supposed to say no. And the answer is that it's someone who's pretty good with numbers but doesn't have enough personality to be an accountant. Uh, uh, so enough for those poor economists out there. So when I was putting together the slides for this, I thought, well, I'll just go, go to Mr. Google and uh, pull up a slide to show just how poor Native Americans are. 
And so I Googled uh, minority income over time. And this is the slide I found. And if you look at it, you will notice that it talks about Asians, Hispanics, all races, black, but you won't find Native Americans. And I think that alone is very telling about just where Native Americans stand in, in, the, in, in, in U.S. policy regarding minorities and especially poor minorities. And yet, if you look around the United States, if you live where my wife Monica and I live in Montana, where we have seven uh, American Indian reservations, you look around, there are 326 recognized Indian reservations. There are uh, millions of acres on those. That if you added them all up, it would be the size of the state of Idaho. Represents 5 million people living on reservations. This is not an insignificant, certainly small compared to many of the other minority groups, but it's not an insignificant number of people uh, who live on these reservations and truly live in poverty. I call it, they live on islands of poverty in a sea of wealth. Uh, these, these pictures here are from the, the reservation, the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. If you go to any reservation in Montana, say the Crow Reservation, the Blackfeet, two of the biggest up in the northeastern part, the Fort Peck, uh, you find, you just, you, you will think you've been transported to a third world country. Uh, when I visited some of the Latin American countries, I've been in Africa many times, and, and you, you compare it, 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 it looks as though you've just been transported out of this sea of wealth uh, onto this island of poverty. Well, here are some data that I put together to show just where Indians rank. And if you look at it, they're below everybody. They are truly the poorest minority in the United States. Here is a slide that shows the poverty rate on reservations. And what's so obvious is that the, the poverty rate is not only greater, it persists despite the fact we have a federal government that spends billions of dollars on on Indian health care, on Indian education, uh, on all number of programs designed to help the Native American. And as uh, we've been, we've uh, sort of teamed up a bit more with the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, which has a center within the, within the Fed to study Native American economies. And the, the president, uh, former president actually of, of the Minneapolis Fed, uh, pointed out that the poverty we're talking about is poverty that persists and has persisted for a long time and continues to persist. When you, when you see this, you see it either because you go out and visit a reservation or you look at these data, you can't help but ask, why? What's the problem? And I, 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 I want to make sure, and I'll come back to this point, certainly there are some reservations that are doing better than others. And uh, if you go to reservations that are in metropolitan areas and that have successful gaming uh, uh, enterprises, they're doing much better. But if you go to uh, Crow Agency, Montana, about 80 miles from Billings, Montana, uh, the largest city in Montana with 100,000 people. This is a reservation that's not on a major freeway. It's not close to a major uh, population area. They tried gaming, and if you 
go there today, you'll find a small casino that's run down and has closed. It is not the answer for solving the poverty problem in general, even though it has had some successes uh, in, in certain areas. So why are these incomes so low? What is it that, that's, that makes American Indians uh, live in the kind of poverty they have? And the, I, I was just, uh, my wife and I were just at a dinner and, uh, with a bunch of ranch people and, and uh, this one person was asking me about what I was working on. I was telling him this. He said, oh, I lived on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana for a while and the Crow Reservation. He said, the reason they're poor is culture. Uh, they have this culture of poverty. They, have, they don't understand markets. They, they, don't, uh, they don't understand how to integrate into a market system like the one that they sit in the middle of. And so if you read the literature, I just read a review in The Economist magazine while flying down here about how important culture is. And to be sure, it is important, and I'll highlight some ways in which it is. But the, the idea is that, it, that they don't want to get rich. They don't understand markets. They've never, they've never engaged in trade. And, and uh, for all these reasons, they, they are poor and remain poor. Another one is, well, they don't really have resources. Well, I just had a slide up there that shows you they have an area, if you add it all up, the size of Idaho. And I'll show you some numbers of just how rich they really are when it comes to resources. Uh, but the idea is that they got this poor land, and you drive up to the, the uh, uh, Fort Peck Reservation in northeastern Montana, especially today when the wind is blowing and it probably is below zero, uh, you might say, well, they really are, you know, we really dealt them a bad hand by giving them, if you will, giving, giving back to them in a way, uh, these, these lands, that, that they just don't have, have any resources upon which to, to build their uh, uh, societies, their, their economies. And then finally, and this is why this fits so well with the Hoover Institution, uh, an explanation is that they have some bad institutions. John Cochran used the, the phrase property rights and the rule of law when talking about the difference between North and South Korea. And it's that that really is the Hoover theme that fits what goes on on these reservations. Well, let me just talk first a little bit about the history of, of American Indians and debunk the, the idea that, that American Indians uh, have a culture that's just not compatible with capitalism, if you want to call it that. Uh, oops. Uh, well, first off, the idea that somehow they, they lived in these big communal uh, societies, uh, if you've ever seen the, most people have seen the, the movie Dances with Wolves, where, you know, they, they lived in this big, in this society where they'd go out and they'd hunt buffalo and then they'd share all the meat. And, and so, as, a, as John used the phrase, John Cochran, uh, as an incentive economist, I, I look at that and think, wait a minute, is that really true? Did, did they not have understand property rights and the importance of creating the right incentives? And the answer, if you look at the history, and we've done some conferences at Hoover and plan to continue doing so, looking uh, at the history of, of Native American and, and indeed Canadian and, and other First Nations around the world, if you look at that history, they understood property rights. This is a picture of a, of a, a weir across a river in, uh, on the, in the Pacific Northwest. 
That's a huge capital investment. Now, this was many years ago, of course. This was uh, right uh, in the middle of the 19th century. But you look at the capital investment it would take to put together a, first off, a boat that you could use in this river, uh, to get the, the materials and the, uh, the, the branches to create this weir and then to lash them all together. This is an enormous capital investment. Turns out that these weirs were privately owned. And there was a return on the investment. It was your weir, you took care of it, you took care of the fish in this river, and you captured a return, just as we might think of the returns John Cochran was talking about. Uh, part of the project at Hoover has been to just identify the various ways in which American Indians had property rights and used those property rights to create incentives for, uh, for creating more wealth. We're putting together some videos that will tell these stories uh, and show the ways in which the history of Native Americans is one that's very much compatible with the ideas uh, of, that define a free society. The idea, get back here, all right, slow down. Uh, another way in which incentives are, were incorporated is illustrated in this wonderful painting by Charlie Russell. Uh, if you look at this picture, it shows some, uh, some Indian braves riding horses into a buffalo herd uh, with their spears and bows and arrows. And I always like to point out, I, uh, my wife and I have horses, and I, I'm a reasonably decent rider. I most of the time can keep the horse between me and the ground, which is the way to measure whether you're any good at it. Uh, but I would never think of riding my horse that fast into a herd of animals that have big points sticking out of their heads. I'm also an archer. I like to hunt. I can't, if I can't imagine the first scenario, I really can't imagine riding into that herd with a bow and arrow trying to shoot one or carrying a lance trying to jab one. Well, this is a picture that shows people doing that. And they're supposedly, the, 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 the cultural story is that then they would share all this meat. Well, if you look closely at this picture, uh, you will notice that that lance in the foreground has some colored markings on it. Those colored markings were there for a purpose. Once the buffalo was killed, you knew who killed it. That brave's markings were different from the one behind with the bow and arrow, who also had markings on his arrows, showing that that was his buffalo. Those braves, oh, and they were riding their horses, privately owned horses. They got the first choice in the cuts of meat. They got the hump, which was a uh, the, the morsel that everybody would like to have. They made huge investments again in both the human capital and the physical capital necessary to bring that buffalo to the table. And after that, they could dispose of the rest of the meat to the people who helped butcher it, who helped carry it back to the camp, and so on. This is a society, when you think of it in the context of the incentives John Cochran was talking about, fully understood what property rights are about and why they're important for incentives. And my final story is they, they totally understood trade. I, I've, I, I like history. I, I uh, read a lot of Indian history and anthropological accounts. And you find that, for example, uh, the Mandan villages in North Dakota, where Lewis and Clark spent their first winter, was a trading node where people came from the west coast with seashells, from Minnesota with pipestone, from the south with various kinds of wood, uh, with obsidian from Yellowstone Park, 
and they came together in the Mandan villages and traded uh, at big trade fairs. They understood trade. They understood gains from trade. They didn't need to read Adam Smith to figure this out. It was just a way human beings throughout history have operated. And my favorite story is, uh, uh, the picture here is a picture of, 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 of trade axes. Trade axes were something that the, the traders who interacted with American Indians for furs and so on would trade a metal axe for bringing in some furs. Lewis and Clark had with them on their expedition a blacksmith, and that blacksmith made some trade axes in the Mandan villages and put into the trade axes a symbol of the core of dis discovery. That's in the winter. They take off in the spring and start up the Missouri River. They get all the way to the Three Forks in Montana. Sacagawea shows them the river to follow to go up. They cross over and they come to the Naperse uh, villages in uh, western Idaho, eastern Washington. One of the trade axes is already there. It has been traded from that village in the Mandan, the Mandan villages, traded and traded and traded again until it beat them to that village in Idaho. That tells you just how extensive that trade, trade system was. And Lewis and Clark are marvel when, when they're in their journals, they marvel at how, how this happened. Again, what all this says is that the ideas that we talk about defining a free society that we think are key to the property rights and rule of law necessary for creating the wealth that we all enjoy were alive and well during pre-contact and even during early contact. But something changed very dramatically. And I refer to this uh, as Indians moved out of their old indigenous economies, those that had the kinds of incentives and, and institutions I just described briefly, into colonial indigenous economies. We, we raided rather than traded. We took land from them. We had a standing army following the Civil War. And Lieutenant Colonel Custer, known as General Custer, because if he was fighting Indians, he got his brevet rank from the Civil War took his troops, who were otherwise bored, and went out and fought Indians and took land from Indians. As a result, of course, they lost huge territories, uh, ultimately were relegated to reservations. Those reservations were whittled away as well as we, as a society that said, we're mightier than thou, we can take it if we want. Let me use one of the examples. You've probably been to Glacier National Park. Glacier National Park was part of the Blackfeet Reservation until we decided in 1914, I believe, Glacier was created, that we wanted to create Glacier National Park, and so we just took that portion of the Blackfeet Reservation from the Blackfeet tribe and turned it into our wonderful national park. Most people have no idea that they're on land that was, in all, for all intents and purposes, stolen during this colonization period. If it wasn't bad enough that we kept carving away, I could tell more stories. And again, we've, we've, we're, the research project at Hoover is aimed at documenting these kinds of, of examples to illustrate just the extent to which this colonialism that overrides uh, Indian reservation economies today holds them in the poverty that, that prevents uh, and prevents them from the economic prosperity they might have. 
Another element of it that's just so fascinating, well, let me put it, get you to think about it this way. Imagine that you took any, any minority in the United States and you said, you people, whatever your skin color, are not competent to own land. Well, in today's society, you would just be aghast that we would say that about an African-American, uh, a Hispanic. And yet, to this very day, American Indians do not own the land on their reservations because a law passed in 1877 said, Indians are not competent to own land, and so we shall hold their land in trust because they are incompetent. And so the Bureau of Indian Affairs today is the trustee for land on reservations that either is technically or is defined as being tribal land but held in trust, or is held, uh, has an individual Indian and that individual Indian's uh, heirs name on it, but is held in trust because they aren't competent to own land themselves. Now on those reservations, and this map here is the Crow Reservation in, in uh, South Central Montana, is there's a real checkerboard. And the brown colors, for example, are tribal land held in trust. Uh, the white colors are, are individual pieces of land held in trust. And then there is a fair bit of that more pink colored land, which is actually private land. And I, there's a long history of how that came to be. But there is some private land. When you go to that reservation and you drive around, you don't need this map to tell you where the trust land is. And the reason you don't is the trust land is so much less productive. Even though it has the same rainfall, the same soil characteristics, the same everything that you might think would affect productivity. But it has one thing that is lacking but exists with privately owned fee simple land, and that is it can be transferred. It can be used as collateral. If you own some land and wanted to improve the agricultural productivity, if you were one of these farmers on the Crow Reservation, you would go to the bank and you'd say, I have a title to this piece of land, and I would like to borrow some money to put in a sprinkler irrigation system. And the banker would say, well, show me your business plan and so on. But the banker would especially like to know you have that title. American Indians don't hold a title that they can use to borrow money in the financial system. Well, not surprisingly, if you drive around the Crow Reservation, the Fort Hall Reservation, Idaho, any reservation that is in the West, you will find that kind of mosaic and you will have no trouble telling which are the fee simple private lands and which are the ones held in trust. If you don't have the title, you have what Hernando de Soto, very, very famous Peruvian economist, calls dead capital. You can't, put, you can't make this capital come to life if you can't transfer it. And you can't transfer it because we, as a federal government, have said you are not competent. That kind of colonialism goes a long way toward explaining why it is that reservations are poor. Let me just show you a few numbers to, to illustrate just what this colonialism, what this trusteeship has done. American Indian reservations have 30% of the nation's coal. The Crow tribe is the biggest holder 
of coal reserves in the country, bigger than any other reservation and bigger than any company. They have 50% of all the oil and gas reserves that we think exist in the United States. And yet, those resources generate almost no income or wealth for American Indians. These are data for the Crow Reservation. It's a big reservation. 21 billion tons of coal on that reservation. Now, they were mining some of it. Uh, they were making money off of it. But if you look at the rate of return on that asset, uh, if, the, if your financial manager were the, the one that manages this, namely the Bureau of Indian Affairs, you would say, whoa, <laughs> you're fired. I want somebody who can help me manage these resources better. Uh, as the chairman of the Crow tribe said during the Obama uh, administration's war on coal, your war on coal is a war on my people. It has held these people, continued to hold them, in poverty. If you want to just see the absurdity of what this trusteeship can do, look at this quote uh, from Stoney Angtel from the Fort Peck Reservation in northeastern Montana. They were trying to develop some of this oil and gas reserve that, that I said tribes have 50% of. And they were going through, I think, the third or fourth year of archaeological studies to determine whether there was something here that, that would uh, take away from their cultural heritage if they developed the land. <laughs> and I love his quote. He said, you know, this stuff's been farmed and tilled and planted. There is no teepee rings there. Uh, the point here is that the, these people do know what they have, and they care about what they have. He wasn't in favor of just raping and pillaging uh, cultural resources, but he wanted his tribe to be able to capture some of that wealth. Finally, to illustrate just how this has, has affected reservation income and wealth, the tr the, uh, a woman named uh, Cobell from the Blackfeet Reservation, Eloise Cobell, filed suit against the federal government because she was not getting the small payments she was due for the BIA leasing her land held in trust to a non-Indian cattle rancher. Just wasn't getting her checks. And she said, I'm filing suit. I want my money, even though it was small. Eventually, it became a class action suit. The class action suit involved $176 billion of trust revenues that could not be accounted for. They could not find where that $176 billion of revenues generated, not what they could, have, could be, but still revenue, generated from leasing these trust lands was lost by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. During the Obama administration, after years of battling this court battle, Ms. Cobell won, and the other litigants won, and they settled for $3.4 billion. And it was called a great victory. I looked at it and thought and wrote about it at the time. You lost $176 billion, and now you say we're sorry, and you give back $3.4? This is hardly a victory. And the the problem still exists. Tribes and individual Indians can't get the money that 
is generated, even though it's not as much as it could be, from the land that's on these reservations. The same is true in Canada. Same is true in New Zealand to a certain extent. Uh, I've been working with the Kamloops Band of, uh, in British Columbia, Central British Columbia. Uh, they have, you can look at this picture, and if I ask you, tell me where you think the tribal lands are. The stuff on the left is Kamloops, the city. The stuff on the bottom is the other part of Kamloops, the city. And the stuff in the upper right-hand corner is the reserve, as they call their reservations, that belongs to the Kamloops band. It's not developed, except for one little bit, which has a 99-year lease that Manny Jules' father managed to put in place many years ago. Their land is also held in trust. They can't get out from under colonialism. So the question that we are addressing with this project at Hoover is how can we help American Indians, but also First Nations in Canada, and we're working with Maori tribes in New Zealand, how can we help them understand the property rights and rule of law that's necessary to bring them out of poverty from the bottom up rather than trying to resolve it from the top down. As one of the tribal members put it in one of our meetings, we need to stop thinking about funding from the government and start thinking about how we generate our own revenue. That's the key and it's what this project is really all about. We've been working with tribes to better understand how they can secure private rights to their land, how they can wrest from the federal government the trusteeship that they're held, uh, that they're held bond, in bondage with. We want to help them understand creating governance structures that work, and certainly uh, working with uh, 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 the chairman of the Crow tribe in Montana, uh, close by, that's why we work a lot with him. I love him, he, he's been to a Hoover conference. Uh, his name is A.J. Not Afraid. And A.J. understands there's a very corrupt government and he wants to change it. But, but what he doesn't understand is what kinds of institutions do they need. And, and our project is aimed at trying to, to introduce him to the kinds of ideas that, that, that all the scholars at Hoover work on. And finally, somehow these tribes have to get some semblance of fiscal uh, independence worry about their revenues, not their funding. Uh, let me give you two examples where this is happening because one of the things that, that we're discovering is that there are some tribes that are figuring it out. This is the Flathead Reservation, the Salish Kootenai Confederated Tribes in uh, northwestern Montana near Glacier Park on Flathead Lake. Beautiful piece of property. Their lands were held in trust, still are held in trust. But through a special piece of legislation that was passed, they've been able to get control of managing their own forests. So we looked at just how well are these forests managed, and you can look at the data. It turns out that the Flathead tribe, given that they manage their forests, they're their forests, they get the revenues, are doing quite well. These numbers show their costs and their revenues compared to the Lolo National Forest, which sits right next door, right? Just, I mean, there's just a line and one side is tribal, one side is run by, the, again, the federal government. The tribe earns over $2 for every dollar it spends. The federal government barely breaks even and that's because this is a really productive forest.
Or here's one from Nebraska, the Winnebago Reservation. They created a reservation, uh, sorry, a, a, a corporation, the Ho-Chuk, and it was created with money from the tribe that was generated from their gaming operations. That, that corporation has done enormous amounts to create wealth in the economy, using that money, investing it itself, showing every bit of competence that supposedly they don't have. Lance Morgan, we've invited him to a couple of conferences, but you can imagine he's the, he's the CEO of, of the company. You can imagine he's fairly busy. We haven't gotten him. We'll get him to Hoover one of these days. But uh, he was recently quoted as saying, uh, you know, we've, we've taken our own control here. We, we know what we're doing. And I love the last part. I refuse to believe that the Winnebago's are Karl Marx's last hope. Uh, these are tribes that are doing very well. I mentioned we do some work with, the, uh, with some uh, uh, Maori from New Zealand. The Maori, the, the Naitahu tribe on the South Island, uh, has a corporation now worth uh, 5.3 billion US dollars. It's invested in fisheries, it's invested in agriculture, it's invested in housing. When the earthquake occurred in Christchurch, they had some of the biggest uh, land holdings, real estate holdings, and their real estate was being repaired far faster than even the Pacquiao or white real estate, if you will. They're doing very well, they understand. I'll close by uh, a, a favorite quote from, I've mentioned Manny Jewell several times. And Manny just captures well what this ideological uh, or this philosophical rev revolution is about. We just want to be able to own our land, own land. We want what every other Canadian has. And, and that's the theme of, of the philosophical rev revolution as put forward by Manny. Uh, but more importantly, I can go back to uh, a hero of mine, Chief Joseph. And he captured it very well. He you know, tried to escape uh, the cavalry who chased him all the way to the Canadian border and captured him about 10 miles from the border uh, in, in uh, the late 1800s, and in 1879 he went to Washington and he gave a speech and he said, let me be a free man. And again, you can read the rest of it. One of the things we're trying to do at Hoover now is to create the Chief Joseph Freedom Index, <laughs> uh, an index that captures just which reservations are doing well and is it because they have the things that Chief Joseph talked about. I hope that if you uh, uh, will follow Hoover's work, you'll see that this, this project, though it is very micro in a sense, can have a huge effect on the most impoverished group of Americans, the Native Americans. We're doing research, we're conducting symposia in DC, case studies, we hope to start a student uh, education, young tribal leader education program. Uh, I think this is a way that Hoover can show just how the research that we do can be taken to a level where it can, it can show just how important the ideas defining a free society are to creating wealth, income, especially for people who deserve the dignity and the opportunity that the ideas defining a free society offer. With that, let me close and take a few questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, 
Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.